0: Why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside? One, two, three, four.
1: This is the Prying Priest podcast, and I'm Father Yuri Hladio. You're listening to the first half of an unedited interview about the personal stories of amazing people and why they have come to believe what they do. For the second half of these interviews, you can become a patron of the show at patreon.com slash pryingpriest. But for now, enjoy the show. Hello, David Greisel. Did I get that right? Yes, you did. Perfect. I did my research beforehand. So uh, welcome, David Greisel, to the Prying Priest podcast with me, Father Yuri Hladio. Um, I'm very excited. You're, one of the, you're the first high-profile guest I have on the show. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. I'm not sure how pr- high-profile I am, really. Um, well, one of the reasons why I contacted you was because my brother-in-law, Martinez, uh, I, I told him about the show that I'm doing, the podcast I'm doing, and he immediately said I had to interview you. <laughs> so uh, I'm very excited to have you on. Uh, I was wondering, could you just give a quick... Um, who you are, and uh, and yeah, a quick sort of bio, and then I'll ask a couple of questions from there. Yeah, so
0: I'm an architect, and I live in the Kansas City metropolitan area, actually work in Kansas City and live in Overland Park, Kansas, so I'm bi-state. Uh, I've been an architect for upwards of 40 years, so it's, uh, it's been a pretty long poll, but uh, I feel very uh, very happy to do what I do. And uh, I have a lovely bride and three grown children who are now out of the house and on their own. So they're independent adults, and uh, we're empty nesters um, living in the Kansas City area, looking to downsize at some point in the near future. And uh, yeah, oh, and I uh, I am the proprietor of a small design firm called Convergence Design, which is a firm that. I launched in 2010. I call myself a necessity entrepreneur because uh, the launching of the firm was a result of a layoff that came during the big uh, economic downturn
1: in the uh, in the late aughts. mm mm-hmm. And and people might know some of your work. So I I've I've been the beneficiary of some of your design in that I've sat in the seats at PNC Park you know, nice. on, a summer, on a summer evening overlooking uh, the Pittsburgh um, downtown. And uh, I believe you were the lead designer on that. Is that right? I was, yeah. No better place to be on a summer night than uh, PNC Park. But
0: uh, when I was with a, a previous firm that was uh, larger than Convergence Design, I was fortunate to be the uh, lead designer for what I like to say is two and a half major league ballparks. Uh, I followed the uh, Houston Astros project Minute Maid Park all the way through, and PNC Park all the way through, and kind of got started on Bush Stadium in St. Louis, but did not see that one all the way through, which is why I say two and a half. But mm-hmm. uh, the the stadium they built in St. Louis looks very much like my early design concept, so I'm going to claim at least partial credit for that one.
1: I'll I'll give you I'll give you partial credit for that for sure. Thank you. Uh so the Prying Priest podcast is all about asking about the spiritual lives of my guests and I was wondering if we could maybe go back to your maybe childhood home or growing up what was what was faith like in the home how did that all kind of work
0: Well that's an that's an interesting story um my parents uh were nominally Christian uh, in the in the 50s and 60s when I was a kid at home growing up and so um, we attended a church that was actually on our block, uh, so we walked to church, which was kind of uh, unique for Kansas City, um, and it was a—I uh, don't want to name the denomination because I don't want to badmouth them, but let's just say it was a very, very liberal Protestant denomination, and uh, to my great surprise later in life, when I actually heard somebody present what I understand to be the gospel— uh, I went through years and years of Sunday school and uh confirmation class and choir and did all the things that uh kids do in in church but never actually heard a presentation of the gospel until some years later after I uh, uh that's another story actually how I heard first heard a presentation of the gospel but suffice to say it was
1: it was not a part of my church experience growing up mhm and then so, so how old were you? Did you say when you did when some, when you did encounter that gospel story and and yeah? So right after high school, I
0: started dating a girl who was a, a very serious Christian, and um, this is in the mid nineteen seventies. Okay, so the Jesus People movement is in full swing, and she attended what she called a Bible study that met on Sunday nights in a church basement, uh, not too far from where we lived. And um, it, was, uh, it was led by some semi-notable Jesus freaks, um, one of whom was uh, Paul Clark, who went on to have a pretty significant recording career uh, doing Christian music. But um, that was really that, that so-called Bible study, which was really a full-on worship service. They just never quite owned up to it. Um, was really the first time I had ever heard a presentation of the gospel that had anything to do with uh, you know my sin and Jesus atoning death for my sin. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd managed to get through however many years, you know twelve or so years of uh, church services without ever hearing that. So
1: mm-hmm. it was kind of news to me mm-hmm. so I grew up in I grew up as an orthodox kid, which is like a weird version of Christianity that North Americans usually are not used to. Um, and but my extended family were all Catholic Christians, good devout Catholic Christians. Mm-hmm. And then my parents sent me to two different high schools. One was a Calvin uh, uh, Dutch Reformed high school. Oh and one wow! Was a Mennonite high school. So um, I all of my friends were functionally various types of Protestant Christians, and as well as non Christians mixed in there as well. And I had to sort of learn how to navigate my way through this interdenominational um, world that I lived in. Mm -hmm. And I'm—so, but lots of our listeners haven't necessarily been exposed to lots of different versions of Christianity or different religions or anything, and not even all our listeners are Christian. Could you go through maybe what um, sort of a a gospel presentation might entail, even in its basic form? Yeah,
0: well, so, um, you know— uh growing up in in uh, white not quite suburban Kansas City um denominational differences were were at that time still rather distinct and uh people took note of them you know like if if you were a presbyterian uh it was it was one thing and if you were an episcopalian that was something else and i think those those denominational distinctives still exist, but they are are much more blurred and less uh, less distinct nowadays. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at any rate, um, this this Bible study that I met in the church basement, um, you know, every week would uh, would make it very plain that we can't earn our way to heaven by good behavior, and that uh, we are all fallen creatures who uh, have fallen short of, of God's standard for us, and that um, there are only really two ways uh, of, of earning God's favor, uh, one of which is to live a perfect life, which isn't really a way at all because no one can do it, and the other is to accept Jesus' atoning death for our sins uh, on the cross, and to and to take ownership of that, and to claim uh, Christ's blood as the uh, as the reason why God should accept us, and and that presentation was made every week at this Bible study, and every week, kind of like a good old Southern Baptist worship service, they would ask people to make a declaration of faith and come forward and have the the. Elders of this non church bible study <laughs> uh pray for you and uh and pray over you and uh, so that was that was done every week. I did never come forward at that at that meeting, but it was uh, really just a few months uh, after attending that um, that uh, bible study that that I did kind of come to terms with God uh, in my own way
1: mm-hmm. what i'm interested to pursue in our conversation today is eventually. Um, the connection between let's say architecture and faith, um, and we can obviously have some discussions about kind of beauty and what that means in our society, which i'm I'm really excited to do more so on the patreon episode i'll get I'll get into some interesting questions I've prepared for you uh, but maybe we could start with um what was architecture? Like were you always interested in designing buildings and uh, interested in kind of the beauty of of buildings and and things like that from an early age or was that something that came in later?
0: Yeah, I think I was. Um, you know, people uh, ask me, you know, when did you know you were going to become an architect? And one, one answer that I give is kindergarten because I love to build with blocks and mm-hmm. – invariably, adults would walk by my block structures and say, ooh, you're going to be an architect. So, you know, I just sort of filed that away and didn't think much about it. In high school, I, I actually started doing what, what might be called fantasy architecture, which is uh, I drew designs and built models of uh, stadiums for my high school, including a domed stadium for my high school, mm. which of course would have been absurdly expensive and completely unnecessary. But um that was sort of you know i, I see now in retrospect a, a precursor of of where i would uh, end up in later life and in fact i have actually designed now a stadium with a retractable roof <laughs> in Minute Maid mm-hmm. park in in houston so uh that that prophecy kind of came true uh and then as i was finishing up high school you know trying to think about what i wanted to major in in college i i, I basically had three ideas one was to become a lawyer but I thought if I was going to be a lawyer that I would have to defend guilty clients, which I didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that was sort of my my high school understanding of the law at that point that, you know, every lawyer had to defend guilty clients. So uh didn't want to do that. And then uh, I thought about advertising as a career because I had some knack for drawing and, and sort of creative wordplay and that kind of thing uh but basically the same argument as the law i felt like i was going to have to d- you know design advertising for scumbag clients that uh, you know were selling cigarettes or whatever and didn't really want to do that and then the third thing was was architecture which people have been telling me about since kindergarten and, and um so i decided to major in architecture thinking that if something better came along uh, i would change majors and so i got through five years of professional school at, at Kansas State University, and nothing better came along. So I graduated with a degree in in architecture and um, really had kind of a revelatory moment uh, when I got my first uh, job out of school, which is like uh, just after Memorial Day weekend in, in 1979, uh, started working at this little bitty firm in Wichita, Kansas. And um, as as one would do with a rookie architect just out of school, they they assigned me to draw some extremely unimportant details on an extremely unimportant building. But the first time I sat down at the drawing table uh, as a paid intern architect, um, earning you know a whopping five dollars an hour back then. Um, I I had this incredible sense of this is what I was made to do. And, you know, I always when I when I tell the story, I always recall that line from uh, Chariots of Fire, where Eric Little's sister is giving him a hard time about not being a missionary. She wants him to go to China and be a missionary. And Eric Little says to her, God made me for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And that's what I felt, uh, although I wouldn't have stated it exactly that way in 1979. That's what I felt. I felt like uh, this This is what I was meant to do. And so here I am uh, 41 years later, uh, and on those occasions when I still get to draw lines, which is not as often as I would like, uh, I still feel that pleasure. And uh, so it's, you know, I feel like uh, uh, by, you know, Fate, happenstance, or God's direction, I ended up in the exactly right uh, work, line of work.
1: Yeah, I, I think you answered my next question uh, pretty well, <laughs> but I'll ask it anyways. Maybe there's a different nuance we can get here, but uh, a lot of Christian people like to talk about finding your calling, mm-hmm. right? And I, it sounds to me like you had a moment where you did find your calling,
0: yeah, that moment uh, that first week. Um but again, you know, uh I would not have articulated it in that way at that time. Uh it's it's been a lot of years of thinking about what calling is uh and really developing a, a very different understanding of uh of Christianity that has finally led me to conclude that God did call me to be an architect and that it's it's not just a uh, you know, a warm, fuzzy
1: feeling that I got. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So to go back to your story of accepting uh, the gospel news, was there any ever any tension maybe between you and your parents or you and, you know, people at home um, uh, from that? Because it would have been involved with like a different denomination or anything like that?
0: No, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't say that there was tension because I you know I mentioned that my parents were nominal Christians, mm-hmm. uh, that they they've both passed, but um they were uh you know only half-heartedly committed to the, the church that they attended, uh which, mm-hmm. you know, as I said didn't really have much of a much of a formulation of the gospel anyway. And so when I started going to, you know, what I would consider to be much more serious churches, who were serious, more serious about the Christian faith in every way, that didn't really bother them because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they didn't really have much stake in in my remaining in the denomination
1: that I was raised in because they didn't have much stake in it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then, would there is there any moment in your life that you would characterize as a? like a seminal moment in your spiritual life? Yes,
0: there was. Um so I mentioned this this girl that uh, uh took me to this Bible study that met in the church basement and you know we had a uh, because she went to a different college uh we had sort of a corresponding relationship during our freshman year. Uh, but she kind of challenged me, you know, to to either fish or cut bait, not not with respect to her, but with respect to the gospel. You know, she knew that I had heard the gospel because I heard it every week that I went to that Bible study. Um, and so one day in in the spring of my freshman year, I went to a park in Manhattan, Kansas, where you could watch the sunset. And I took a Bible with me. I had my my got Bible that I got in third grade and, you know, had basically never opened and uh, just kind of opened it up and randomly read some Psalms and stuff and, you know, tried to tried to just pray and be open to whatever God might choose to say to me at that moment. And this is right at dusk. And so the, the sun has just set. Uh, the stars are starting to come out, but they're not quite out yet. And then all of a sudden, a bright light appeared in the western sky. I'm not kidding you. It just appeared, a, a very bright light, brighter than a star and then it started to descend and it it actually settled down uh, below the horizon and and disappeared and and that long after that another bright light appeared in the western sky and started to descend And I was like, well, if God is sending me a signal, it's a very strange signal that he's sending to me. But what I eventually figured out was those bright lights I was seeing in the western sky were flares that were being fired by a military base next door to uh, Manhattan, Kansas, at Fort Riley, which is a very large uh, military installation. And they were using the flares to illuminate the battlefield for artillery practice. Um But, as those flares were sinking below the horizon, the stars were coming out and what What really kind of stuck with me at that moment and even to this day is the contrast between the man made flares that went up and were bright for a minute and then uh, sunk down uh, to the ground and and went out uh, to the stars which while we we understand that stars are not eternal. Uh, they last for a very, very long time. <laughs> and uh I really became uh at that point uh, felt like I had to acknowledge uh God's role in creation as as the creator of the universe, as the author of the stars, and uh, and and began to contemplate things like, you know, how just the contrast between man-made things and and natural things, like how much more complicated a puppy was in a 747, you know, and uh, things like that. And, you know, even to this day, the complexity of of the human body and all of its various uh, functions and antibodies and hormones and glands and stuff is just astonishing to me. And the more I think about it, the more astonished I become. And then that was kind of my way into faith, um, was the acknowledgement that that God really is the author of creation. And then uh it it became much easier for me at that point to accept um the the gospel presentation of Christ's redeeming sacrifice uh once i had finally acknowledged god as as the author of everything
1: mm-hmm. have you ever have you ever had an so after that moment so so once you have sort of accepted that that good news and and began living that christian life have you ever had a moment of maybe like severe doubt or a moment that everything just sort of comes crashing in on this one dark moment or anything like that. Um I'm wondering, yeah, is is there anything like that? Well, I think I think we all have doubts. Um and I think
0: um you know, a, a Christian who says they never doubt is is probably either not honest or not thinking about it very hard, but um I have to say that uh, I've I've doubted myself much more often than I've doubted God, and mm. um, I will say that, in all honesty, the first few years of my Christian walk were not stellar in many respects. Um, I was, you know, what you would call a baby Christian for for a long time. And it wasn't until I I began attending a different church in Wichita, the city where I took my first job, that uh, I really began to get serious about what the commitments of a Christian were and and ought to be and, you know, how I really ought to live versus how I just wanted to live. So mm-hmm. um, there were a few years where, uh, you know, that, that old line that uh, evangelists like to say, if you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Um, those first few years, probably there would not have been enough evidence to convict me,
1: but I'd like to think that maybe now there would. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh was there so back to the architecture side of, of your life. Uh so you became a Christian and there was also this architecture side. Was that relationship between faith and architecture something that was always easy to integrate or uh, not at I guess- all. Oh, not at all okay, yeah we 'll take it away not from there i 'm interested to hear this,
0: yeah, so uh, you know, as I became a more serious Christian, uh, my taste in churches also became more serious, and i I began looking for churches that had a really strong you know basis in in biblical literacy and and you know took the Bible very seriously, took Jesus very seriously, took the atonement very seriously. And as a consequence of that, I, I ended up in churches that today would broadly be characterized as evangelical. You know, understood not as a particular denomination, but sort of a school of thought that that places a great deal of emphasis on biblical literacy and you know, and, and the redemptive uh, nature of of Christ's work. And uh, the problem with that is that in the 1980s and 90s. Evangelicalism in the United States of America, which is really all I know, um, was very much um, concerned with personal salvation. That is, your individual relationship with Jesus Christ was the only thing that mattered. In fact, I have heard evangelists and evangelicals say those very words that, you know, the only thing that matters for all of eternity is a human soul. Everything else is going to burn. And as an architect, you can imagine that made me feel kind of bad because what these evangelists were saying was your work doesn't matter at all. Uh, Your work is just you're just building sandcastles that are going to get washed away at the Great Tribulation. And the only thing that really matters is your personal relationship with Christ and whether you are leading other people to to a personal relationship with Christ. And um, so it was, in, in the 80s and 90s, uh, very hard to integrate what I was doing as an architect with my faith in an evangelical tradition that viewed personal salvation as the only aspect of Christianity that was worth talking about. And it wasn't until uh, the early part of this century that a different conversation began to emerge that, that I would characterize as a fuller expression of the gospel that starts at creation with God's work in creation, and and very importantly, his cultural mandate to Adam and Eve to cultivate and subdue the earth and bring forth culture, if you will, upon the earth. Uh, and then, of course, there is the fall, and and our first parents do sin, and that Results in all sorts of unfortunate consequences, which Jesus had to undo with his death on the cross. But then there's a fourth chapter. So the first chapter is creation, the second chapter is the fall, the third chapter is Christ's redemption. But there's a fourth chapter, which is the new creation, which is where everything gets put right and that was another thing that the the evangelists didn't really talk much about they talked about the second coming a lot but they didn't really talk about the new creation and the what i now understand to be the restoration of all things so uh, you know there's a phrase um in the bible that says all things will be made new which is is very different than saying there's going to be all new things, right? All things made new is very different from all new things. And I think a lot of uh, late 20th century evangelists had this notion that it was going to be all new things and that everything that was here now is just going to burn up and blow away like like dust. Um, So having that And that came through some very interesting conversations, which I'd be happy to elaborate on. But having that broader understanding of the gospel, starting in creation, going through the fallen redemption, and then into the new creation really helped me to integrate my work as an architect to the point where I now hold views that probably somebody considers heretical, that there will be human work in the new creation, um, mm-hmm. that uh, there's some some lines in scripture that say, you know, that kings will bring their treasures into it, referring to the new Jerusalem, and the idea is that there might actually be human made things um, in the new creation. That it's and and the other thing that's interesting about that, if I can just digress for a moment, is absolutely. Um, I think a lot of Christians are laboring under the misconception that our destination is a restored Eden, and that's not actually correct in my view. Um, In my view and, and what I've learned in the last 20 years is that we're not headed to a restored Eden. We're headed to a new Jerusalem. So the progression is from a garden to a city, not from a garden back to a garden. And again, because I'm an architect and somebody who is participating in the building of cities, that notion is very important to me because I like cities and I like the idea of cities, and I really like the idea that the New Jerusalem is a city that's you know so spectacular we can't we can you know it beggars the imagination. It's it's, it's very difficult to imagine, uh, but it's going to be more beautiful than any city we've ever seen. And, you know, that's intriguing and energizing to me. And as, as a believer, uh,
1: frankly, it makes me want to do better architecture. Uh, so I'm, I'm an Orthodox priest, right? And the Orthodox tradition has a long tradition of big, beautiful cathedrals, yes. churches, paintings. Uh, ideally, uh, if you're doing it right, um, the, the space— has a purpose for being that way in terms of leading you through it, right? Uh, Absolutely. The images in a a church should have an itinerary that you Mm -hmm. can actually see the conversations that the images are having with each other in the space. Um, So so there's a narrative aspect to it. Right,
0: right. But there's also a transcendent aspect to it. It's supposed to awe and overwhelm you. Mm -hmm. And uh, frankly, you know, many of the spaces that, that, evangelicals have created in the 20th century are neither awesome nor overwhelming. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm, yeah.
0: Sometimes they're just big auditoriums with a lot of fancy lights.
1: <laughs> so I have, a, I have a story for you. Uh, this is a true story. So I was ordained to be a priest uh, in a small country Orthodox church uh, just north of Winnipeg, Manitoba um, in the aug- August of 2019. So it's been a year and a bit from at the time of this recording. And um, so uh, my wife's uncle is uh, a, a pastor, uh, one of the many pastors at a big sort of mega church evangelical style church in Winnipeg. And he came to support and came for the service and everything. And of course, if you've ever been to an Orthodox service, there's lots of pageantry, lots of singing, robes, incense, images, movement. it, And it's long and then... The service ends and people go downstairs. Refreshments, you know, a little bit of a, a little bit of a fellowship party afterwards. And um, I was chatting with my wife's um, uncle, and he was uh, we were, he was talking about all the symbolism. Like, wow, look at all the symbolism that's here, and da 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 da. And I and I said, well, I think that your church has a lot of symbolism too. And I'm I'm thinking whatever whatever the space is, it communicates something. There's mm-hmm. no like blank space Absolutely. that communicates nothing. So uh, and he said, no 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 no. We we just design it like a shopping mall. It has no <laughs> it has no uh, no symbolism. And it, I dropped. I didn't I didn't pursue it there. But in my mind, I was like the shopping mall is the the people who design shopping malls are the people who understand this the most, mm-hmm. that they know how to guide people th- subconsciously through an experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, I don't know. It was just Have one of those heard, surreal uh, moments.
0: Have you ever heard Jamie Smith uh, talk about the
1: liturgy of shopping? Yeah. Is that the one where he starts in the parking lot and yeah. it's like a sea of pavement? Yeah. I. Yeah. I think all of our listeners absolutely have to go and read that. He describes the whole experience of going into a shopping mall shopping, mm-hmm. uh, but f- purely as a religious phenomenon. Right, right, and it's it's it's, a, it's, it's amazing. It's wonderfully done. So yeah, yeah and, 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 so ahead. I completely agree with you that uh, you know
0: evangelical spaces uh, tell a story. They just tell a very different story than. Uh, than the the orthodox uh, kind of spaces do, and the you know the story that evangelical spaces tend to tell is that uh, it, it's all about pragmatism, which is odd because I don't think of Christianity be as as being particularly pragmatic. It's all about thrift. It's all about um, uh, you know the complete absence of symbolic content uh, other than the the sort of unintended symbolic content of a shopping mall. Um and, and so yeah I, I have a lot of bones to pick with the way uh many of my fellow evangelicals have been designing churches for years and years.
1: Yeah. So how would you approach that issue now if if a church came to uh, an evangelical church came to you and said we want you to design our, our church what what would you want what would be the ideal kind of work conditions to make your vision come to reality well an unlimited budget for one thing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no uh, you one has to
0: understand that, that spaces that are transcendent in the way that a that a gothic cathedral is transcendent are more expensive than ordinary workaday spaces like a supermarket and uh you know nowadays uh, a lot of a lot of churches launch in supermarkets so they become used to that uh, sort of approach but um, you know the the conditions under which I would best design a church would be conditions where uh, the people who are hiring me understood that uh, a church facility should uh, transcend ordinary human experience, should direct um, the worshipper's attention uh, to things that are greater than and and beyond themselves. Uh, and so verticality becomes important. You know, I think that's what the one thing that the Gothic cathedrals got spectacularly right was their their sense of verticality. And then, as you say, um, you know, the the Orthodox uh, churches want to tell a story. They want to have narrative content uh, that can be used to to explain the faith to presumably even an illiterate worshiper. So, um, I think you know that that focus on uh, symbolic and narrative content. Uh, the transcendence and verticality of the space would would all be characteristics that I would seek to capture in a church, uh, even if it was a very modest church. Mm-hmm. Have you worked on any churches recently? Oh. I did one um a little a little bitty Baptist church in uh, Cameron, Texas, for a client who actually used to be an executive of the Houston Astros. Uh, and he went to this uh, church that that literally met in a house, and he wanted to build a sanctuary for them. And and I think that um, in spite of uh, you know a relatively limited program, uh, you know because it was a small congregation uh, and a not infinite budget, we managed to achieve some of those things. And and people uh, find the church uh, pretty remarkable, sitting out there on the prairie, you know, in in the sheep pastures and. Like
1: it does. Mm -hmm. So uh, I am the uh, priest in charge of a very small grassroots community that's just started up in Hamilton, Ontario. Mm -hmm. And we have, like, we're talking 20 members or so, Mm -hmm. like, very, very small. And we don't have our own space. We're meeting out of a Romanian Orthodox church. But our situation is interesting in that most of us have, even though we're Orthodox, we don't have any actual Eastern heritage. Um, Hmm. I do. One of our members does, but that's it. Everyone else is like a regular Western Canadian person with, you know, Dutch or, or English or Irish heritage. And one of the things that we are sort of figuring out is how do you make a space look genuinely orthodox while still engaging with the styles of the culture that we actually live western in western sensibilities. Right, yeah. So, um uh yeah, I don't know. I just thought I'd share that. Uh it's an interesting uh it's an interesting endeavor for us when because we're going to be starting to look for uh, our own space and that'll be one of the things we want to consider.
0: Well, here's a really odd oh by the way story. So, you mm-hmm. remember the the Bible study that I told you about with all the the Jesus freaks. Um mm-hmm. you know, where I first heard the gospel, one of the people who was a lead teacher in that Bible study uh, in the intervening years, became an Orthodox priest, hmm. and and you see him around town now with a three foot long beard, wearing the cassock and the the full deal. Of course, yes, of course. And uh, it's it's really interesting how that evolved. Yeah. I'd I'd love to learn more about that.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I know that there was a big movement, I think, in California around that time as well, of um, even whole evangelical churches becoming Orthodox. Uh, wow. together which is uh, a little radical but the the orthodox orthodox christians in north america have always been uh kind of this like a well-kept secret mm-hmm. um and it's sort of the version of christianity where you get a lot of the things that catholicism offers but you don't have to call yourself catholic <laughs> right um so do you have that in common with the anglicans <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of people, a lot of a lot of uh, let's say evangelical people who be, who want a more traditional expression will either become Anglican or Orthodox because mm-hmm. it's so inbred that you can't become Catholic. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just very fascinating how how that all works out. Uh, our church in in Winnipeg, that very small one I was talking about, uh, has a handful of families that are actually um, former Mennonites who have become. Orthodox. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, which is at uh, that area of the world is, has a lot of Mennonites. So mm-hmm. my wife actually is Mennonite. So
0: well, that uh, that tradition extends down into Kansas as well. I mm-hmm. went to I went to school with a whole lot of Mennonites. In fact, uh, one of my early research projects as a as a young Christian uh, was to learn more about the Mennonite tradition and you know how it was a distinct branch of Christianity from mm-hmm. from other you know other denominations. Mm-hmm. Because there so, were so
1: many of them at uh, at Kansas State. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, what are some? I guess some of the more beautiful um, churches, maybe that you've ever visited, and 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 what makes a church beautiful? Well, um, I guess those are two different questions. But.
0: Yeah, obviously, uh, they need to be done by a talented designer and executed by careful craftspeople. um, So that's kind of a prerequisite. But uh, within that fairly broad limitation, I think there are many beautiful churches uh, in North America. And of of course, um, I, I can't help but mention the cathedrals of Europe just because I think they are so splendid and so uh, so beyond the ordinary that you know I, it it's literally worth a trip to europe just to see the cathedrals but i've been i've been fortunate to be in in cathedrals in in several european countries and the one that sticks out to me above all others is the saint chapelle in paris which is actually a very small chapel that was built by one of the bourbon kings i can't remember which one uh because they had some special relic of course that they wanted to to commemorate uh but it it is so beautiful that it just it just beggars description it it seems like you're walking into an all glass space which is you know it was built in the 1200s so the idea that you could build an all glass building in the 1200s is mind boggling in itself but the, the 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 columns are so slender and the stained glass is so expansive, and then uh, just everything about it is just exquisite. So that's that's kind of my number one. But um, to turn the focus to North America, um, I think uh, Saint Patrick's Cathedral in New York is a space that is transcendent that causes me to gasp when I walk in there. Uh, so so that's pretty cool. And, and then there's some there's some oddball churches uh, like uh, there is a. A Methodist church in Tulsa uh, called Boston Avenue Methodist Church that was designed, we think, by Bruce Goff, although his name is not actually associated with the project. Bruce Goff was an apprentice of Frank Lloyd Wright's. Um, and the, the Boston Avenue Methodist Church is one that takes your breath away most unexpectedly because nobody expects to find transcendent architecture like that in Tulsa. But there it is. And yeah. um, Wright himself did uh, several really interesting churches. one of my favorites is the Unity temple on in uh, Oak Park Illinois which uh, you know while I have some some doctrinal issues with the Unitarians, I think that particular worship space is is one of the best in the country so mm-hmm. um, they don't all have to be gothic um, and um, you know even uh, like uh second I think it's Second Baptist in Providence, Rhode Island, which is you know like a Three or four hundred year old building, uh, and very plain because that was the way, you know, of the New Englanders is is a very beautiful space. So, um, the, you know, churches can can take lots of different styles. They don't have to be Gothic, um, but the, they do need to have that quality of
1: transcendence of making you think beyond yourself when you walk mm-hmm. in the door. So, I have one more question for you in the public episode. But I'm going to tease some of our listeners with some of the questions I'm going to ask you after that in the Patreon-only interview. Uh, So one of the questions I'm going to ask is, have stadiums become our culture's new cathedrals? Have stadiums become our culture's new cathedrals? Uh, Another question is, how important are the layout, decoration, and design of our own homes to our spiritual life? Um, I'm bringing out the big guns for the Patreon episode here. So how important are the layout, decoration, and design of our own homes to our interior spiritual life? Um, and then to round it out, it'll be uh, – so who are some of your favorite non-Christian architects and thinkers? Okay. Um, so so uh, yeah, so, those so are – So that's, go that's looking forward, right? Yes, that's looking okay. forward. That's, that's a teaser for the patrons. So uh, head on over to Patreon, become a, a subscriber, and then you can – uh, hear these amazing answers but to take us to the end of the um public episode David uh, I'm wondering in in which non-church buildings specifically have you ever felt closest to the transcendent if that makes sense or or which non-church buildings have ever given you that gasp or that um awe-inspiring quality Oh that's a really good question um ah
0: uh, okay so uh, it it kind of gets to um what are some of my favorite spaces that aren't churches and so i will go first to kansas city uh union station in kansas city is a train station that was built in 1914 uh, by jarvis hunt who was the architect and the the main hall of union station is one of those transcendent spaces it's it's incredibly beautiful and incredibly large and incredibly tall and when you walk in there, you can't help but throw your head back and let your jaw drop open. So uh, that would be one of those spaces. Certainly, Grand Central and New York is the same kind of space and, and very similar feeling. But I, I spend a lot less time in New York than I do in Kansas City. Um, there is uh, in St. Louis, um, the old train station. Uh, which has since been converted to a hotel has a main lobby space that while it's not nearly as grand as the one in Kansas City is is very very beautiful it's it's decorated um to within an inch of its life in an art nouveau style that um unfortunately was uh like everything else swept away by early modernism but uh it has been restored and is is a, just a glorious space to uh to spend some time. New York's public library is extraordinary. Um, yeah, so th- there are several spaces like that. I think, you know, even <laughs> even some of the hotels that John Portman designed in the 70s with the gigantic atriums have that tendency to make you throw your head back and go, wow. Um, but for some reason, those, those don't
1: make me feel as close to God as the, the train stations that I mentioned. If you'd like to listen to the second half of this interview you can head over to patreon.com slash prying priest your support is what makes this podcast possible thanks for listening say why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside